0: This is The Squad
1: Room, a podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the 21st season of SVU. If you have not watched episode 2105 at midnight in Manhattan, we advise you to do so before listening.
2: Hello and welcome back to The Squad Room. I am your host, Anthony Roman, and this is episode 2105 at midnight in Manhattan. What an episode, multiple storylines, Tension in the workplace, lots of excitement. And speaking of excitement, the great Kelly Giddish is on the program. And we're gonna get into what it's like portraying Detective Amanda Rollins, and what happened in this very unique episode of SVU. After that, co-writer and producer Brianna Yellen breaks down how they created the three distinct stories for At Midnight in Manhattan. Three stories. And finally, acclaimed SVU costume designer Julia Polksa stops by to tell us how she gets our cast looking so good. And all this is happening right here on The Squad Room, which, as always, is brought to you by NBC and Wolf Entertainment. I am pleased to have on the podcast, Kelly Giddish. Hi, how are you? We've been waiting for you.
0: Oh, good. (laughs) I'm happy to be here.
2: Yes. Um, In the beginning, you were a new member in season 13. And was it kind of like going to a high school where everybody knew each other since kindergarten? No, you
0: know what it was? I came in with a kind of regime change with Warren Light. And he was the new showrunner. I think they got an all-new crew the same year. So I felt instant camaraderie, actually, with a lot oh, of the good. people. Yeah, um, the camera guys were new to SVU. And, um, and I also had kind of a wingman with Danny Pino. Uh, we came in at the same time. So it wasn't all on my shoulders to replace Chris Maloney, which made it a lot easier. Just having Warren Light and Julie Martin, but I had known Warren since I was 18 or 19. I met him at a, um, a playwriting conference in Indiana at this tiny town called New Harmony. And he was like a big shot.
2: Because you know, he had done
0: Sideman. Right? Yeah, right. yeah. And so when I found out he was the one that was going to be the new captain of this ship, I was really excited about joining. And the phone conversations that we got to have about Rollins were, were so interesting because he was like, what, what do you want to do? First of all, let's make her not from Pennsylvania or Philadelphia, where she was supposed to be from. Let's go with this Georgia accent you got. Right. <laughs> you know, So I was appreciative of that, just being able to incorporate um, who I am innately, more even than a southern accent or anything like that, just like a a sensibility, a southern sensibility, bringing that to a, a new york squadron was was right. cool. you know, and then being able to talk to him about what kind of issues does she have, You know, the underlying layers, you know, and the gambling came up right in our first conversation. So having, having those layers knowing that that was going to be coming up for Rollins from the very start, it made me really excited to start this job. So I didn't really feel the pressure and, you know, and stepping into huge shoes. I just, I was excited about creating a new character on, on a really long-running TV show, and I had no idea that I would be here for nine seasons. Right.
2: So that actually was my second question because I recently rewatched Home Invasion, episode 14, season 13, which was written by Brian Guyboff. And that was kind of the beginning of your backstory. So you knew that was coming when you got the script. Yeah. So with those things in mind, did you approach Rollins differently than if you were playing just a detective?
0: Yeah. Yeah, because you knew that there was kind of a dark side. I knew that there was kind of a dark side to her and that she didn't have all her ducks in a row. And those kind of characters are, I mean, just inherently more interesting to play anyway. You know, somebody that doesn't have it all it all together and then kind of spirals then you get to come back, which is the fun part.
2: Right. So when you're signing up for a procedural, you knew there was going to be more of the story. It wasn't just going to be reset.
0: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, overall and most importantly, it is a procedural. And that's why I think the audience sticks with us after all these years. You know, it's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. And for all these really dark issues that are sometimes swept under the rug and then we shine a light on, well, for a lot of the survivors and people That actually have to go through this stuff, they get some kind of resolution, I think.
2: In 42. In 42 minutes. minutes. So, a lot has happened to Amanda You've been shy, gambling. I just mentioned you shot a few people. Uh, you had a traumatic, <laughs> easy, easy. Uh, traumatic <laughs> episode with, with <laughs> Esther, which really oh, upset yeah. me. Um, a lot is made about the subject matter that you're dealing with and the victims, but you've gone through stuff. Do you take that home with you?
0: My honest answer is that I'm really, really good at leaving work at work. When you get stopped on the street and people come up to you with a look of gratitude in their eyes and they say thank you for being a part of this show. And I personally haven't had to go through trauma like some of these people have. And luckily, thank God, I get to leave work at work. However, when I did first start the show, my dreams were so messed up. So I was processing it in a different way. And you can't go to work every day and talk about the meanness in the world, you know, and people doing nasty things to each other and not let that affect you. But I'm just not the kind of person that gets bogged down in that. I go back to the camaraderie we have on set and the way we help people instead of it all being, golly, like just overall encompassing. Oh my God, how could people do this to one another? It's great that we explore it and, and we can talk about it. And then, Let's try and figure out some ways to help people, you know, which at the end of the day, that's why it feels good to be on this show because I'm, I'm part of something bigger than myself. And, yeah, it is a TV show, but I think it does help people.
2: So in the last episode of The Squad Room, and this I guess would be a Squad Room exclusive, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Warren said that because you're such a gifted actor, he tends to write difficult storylines for you. MM. So it's partially your fault that (laughs) (laughs) you But it. It's a very nice thing to say. What do you think about that?
0: I think that signals and and articulates the amount of trust that we have. Um, I have great trust in him as a writer and as a thinker. You know, he went away for a couple of years there um, in the last couple of years.
2: uh, And he said you made poor choices in his absence. I
0: did. (laughs) He was not happy with Rollins. He was like, why did you have another baby with... I said, well, Warren, I I did get pregnant in real life, and they (laughs) had to do something about it. Um, I do so trust him, and he's the only showrunner that we've had that, after a read-through, sometimes, like, he's got tears in his eyes, and I've got tears in mine, and it's not like a soupy, oh, it's like, (sighs) like, it takes your breath away sometimes, you know, and... Um, just little moments of, of the script that become so meaningful. And you can tell he's put his heart and soul into it. And when it starts at the top like that, you you can't help but but throw your all into
2: it, too. Let's go to the burden of our choices. You had a tough time in that episode with Evangeline, but you guys really came together and you had a heavy bond. The last scene was just beautiful between you and her.
0: You know, Warren approached me about that episode. He was like, hey, how do you feel about taking a girl to get an abortion at the end of the episode? And I was like, yeah, that's fine. I'm from Georgia where, of course, there were conflicting viewpoints on that. But my mom was an educator. She's retired now in, in high schools. And education is always better than ignorance, you know, in terms of these issues. And seeing someone go through it on TV, if that helps somebody, then, then good.
2: Is it hard to do an episode like that with such a young kid?
0: Yes, because you have to be so sensitive in terms of, you know, with other actors, professional actors, you can push them, you know, like improv and like kind of push them to where maybe they need to be or or like explore where they need to be together with them. You know, with someone as young as her, you have to let it be and let her kind of unfold in a natural like, because you're not going to push a young person to feel or, or to to explore something that doesn't isn't coming naturally and that's why when you see young people that can act their socks off you're just so enthralled and no one can look away because the vulnerabilities that you have they're so exposed you know especially when you're a young person and you don't have any of those guards
2: were you acting at that age
0: um yeah not professionally though you know just in community theater
2: right so talking about midnight in manhattan there's three different storylines you're on the the Chloe storyline. Did you enjoy that structure?
0: I did a lot. Yeah. I did having the same costume on it and, and just going through the night and two, I think it's two nights, three days. Yeah. yeah, so it's, um, it, it was actually thrilling to go, Oh, this is real time, you know, like they are tired, they're exhausted. What, how do the relationships change? And then you see a blow up in the squad room. Well, that was
2: my next question. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the blow up because. You say something, you know, it seems like kind of a regular argument. Then you say something like, I'd be fine if you were still by my side, which seems a little bit extra. Yeah. What's your take on that line?
0: Well, I added that line. Ah. Oh. You know, because I think that I was like, there's something missing here. Like, she says something, but she doesn't go all the way. But I feel like you guys want her to go all the way here. You know, she would be fine in this trench that they're in. They're just swamped. They... They don't have enough people to help the people that they need, the cases, and just one case after another after another. And if you have somebody that you trust and that is your friend and your partner beside you, then you're okay. You're okay going through it. When you're alone, you doubt yourself and you doubt your capabilities. When you have your wingman, your partner, you're like, come hell or high water, we're going to figure this out. She didn't have that.
2: Did you mean that just in a... a I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Because it seemed to me like it had more behind it than just a work
0: thing. Yeah, I think it has been more than work at times with them. He's come over and gets along great with her kids and just helps out. And, like, it's easy. It's a really easy relationship because they understand each other.
2: Yeah, it's great. And the fans obviously love it and they want to know. And I won't ask you what you think is going to happen because I would like for it to be a surprise for everybody. Because no, and, and I know no one knows. I don't know. <laughs> I thought it was a funny little thing when you asked Kat about if she going to what's she doing that night. She's going to a party, and you're like, I miss that. Yeah. And, and I say that all the time. And uh, <laughs> did, was that in the script or did? Yeah, you? it
0: was actually. Like I did it a few ways, and I was like, oh no, but she's like.
2: I just stared at Kat, like she at, really at
0: Jamie. It. At Jamie. I was like, oh, this is the way it should be done. Like, oh my like, lip gloss? What is that?
2: <laughs> I haven't done that in a while. It's like, you know, you get off the train sometimes coming home on a Friday night and you see everybody and it's just like on oh, the outside wow. cafes. Yeah, and you're like, like, Do I you remember go. that?
0: Do you remember when you first got to New York and you'd like go out and meet people at night?
2: Three <laughs> kids.
0: Do you have
2: three kids? Uh, pre-kids. Two. Oh, pre- I have yeah, two. Yeah. Two. So, yeah, twelve and eight, and it's just Aww. you know it's it's getting easier you'll 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 get there <laughs> did you have um a favorite line in episode five or uh, or a favorite scene anything
0: I, I liked i think I think she asked him like it, you know he doesn't give a good excuse. I think it's Sanjay, and he's she said so so you assaulted somebody Like really? that's your go-to that's your that's your your solution to your problem is to go assault someone.
2: What did you make of that storyline? You're very sympathetic to their cause. Yeah. But lines got severely crossed.
0: Yeah. Because like, he says, you know, there's people killing themselves because the medallions are getting taken away and they're so expensive. And, yeah, I hear you, but, you know, act like a person. Act like a human being. Like, this is – you got a little little too creative there,
2: you know? So when Creasy says to you – um you know, I thought you wanted me to go. I thought you said good luck and you say, you thought I meant that? How can you
0: be so dumb? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, Did you mean it? I know you didn't really say it, but like, you were just saying like, good luck. In real
0: life, in real life, I was like, oh man, I'm so happy for you. And in, (laughs) in real life, I was like, Oh, we're not gonna be on the set as much together, life, you know. Life, life so in are. real yeah. life, it it it, it totally mirrored that. Like, yeah, way to go! Oh my gosh, you're gonna get you're gonna get a, a shot at the at that role. You know, that's so great. And you're not gonna be on set with me as much, you know, because we have a great time together. You know, and we both have have um, kids that get along great, and I love his whole family, his wife, and go over there and. And he loves my kids. And so it's like I'm not getting to hang out with a a really good friend as much.
2: And at the end when he gives you credit for finding Muhammad innocent, um, he says, are we good? And you said, you tell me. What does that mean exactly?
0: I don't know. I don't know what that means exactly. I think she wants more than than are we good from him.
2: That was my interpretation. Okay, good. So – we're talking about kids. When I started having kids, like, I was like, I don't even want to ride the cyclone anymore. I'm scared. Do you? Do really? you want, yeah. Yeah. Like, I just want to be there for them. And I was wondering, what do you think about, like, Amanda with two very uh. little children? Like, are you? There's things you won't do as a person now that you have kids, right?
0: Yeah.
2: I'll still ride the cyclone, though. Yeah. I do, too. Yeah. But I thought twice about it.
0: Um. I think her biggest worries don't lie within that realm. That she's a police officer, she might not be there for them, especially this season. She's going okay. I've got some real, um, real habits and real patterns of behavior here that I need to explore because I don't want to pass them on to my my girls. She has two girls, you know. And while Rollins is tough and a good person and dedicated to her job and her family there's obviously some issues in her past and what she saw her mom go through. So I think that that's a thread that she's kind of a little bit of self realization coming to. Um, and she starts going to therapy, you know, which she always, um, you know, I think, I think Benson was always like giving her a card, you know, here, go, go talk to this guy. And hes I I don't need that. I don't need that. You know? So that's been an interesting thing to explore.
2: In episode two, you were resistant to the, mm-hmm. to the therapy, the, was going on within the squad room oh, right. when you are learning the techniques. Right, right, because it worked. Yes, it worked. <laughs> so you have not had good luck with siblings.
0: Huh? <laughs> no. <laughs>
2: I wonder what that. I want to ask Warren what that is. Do you ever go to Warren like, could you give me a break? I want to have some fun and, and just enjoy life.
0: Mm, no.
2: No, you're happy to stay yeah. in the darkness.
0: Yeah, I like, I like all that stuff. You know, I think, um, I think what happens organically is that they write these scenes for me and Mariska that they're not fun and happy scenes but it's it's a moment to to explore that side of her like that trusting vulnerable side um with another single mom
2: if things turned and went into a more happy place you would not be against that it's too boring
0: no i mean it you know it'd be happy it'd be great that's awesome
2: yeah, I know what you mean. It's and then gonna, what? You know, then
0: what? then, yeah. then wait, so all the all the threads are tied up. Everything's good. You don't have any problems. Don't need anybody. You know, that's. I don't think that's very reflective of.
2: Yeah, I asked Warren if he was going to make things easier for you. What would he say? He didn't really answer me. He didn't. But I don't get the feeling he was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what's your freedom like if if something's uh, you're reading a script and you're like, this doesn't feel like Amanda? Great. You can go up to absolutely. Him and, yeah. Can you give me an example of that happening this year at all? Um, I think Warren's weren't so in tune with your character. that
0: 92.: Yeah. Like I asked for a scene um, later in this season that wasn't there just this past week. I said there needs to be this kind of scene to express something that's not resolved or explored enough. And within three hours it was written.
2: Well, they must trust you. I mean, the line that you added in episode five to me was the key to that scene. So that you did that, and it's clearly, like, it just made that. So that's a nice thing you guys have yeah. going for each other. Yeah, you know, with each
0: absolutely.
2: Other. Um, anything fun or funny happen behind the scenes in episode five?
0: Um, welcoming Jamie has been fun.
2: Are you getting a kick out of having someone young and new? To yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not you anymore. No, well,
0: yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. At 39, I'm not the youngest <laughs> anymore. <laughs> Don't worry, Dick. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> we still look plenty young enough. No, but she, you know, she, I taped up her entire door because she, she made fun of my Atlanta Braves. So I literally just put gaff tape in, over her entire dressing room door so she couldn't get in.
2: Oh, because she's, she's the national serpent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. Uh, have you heard Scadamino play guitar? Yeah. And have you heard Warren play trumpet? No. No, because I was thinking, I play bass, right? You so do? we got a band. Be...
0: I, I play guitar as well and this sing. That's
2: what I'm saying. We've got to start a band. What? Oh. We need a drummer, and we can get eyes to rap. So that's Done. my project. All Done. Done. Right. Well, Kelly Giddish, thank you so much for coming on Squad Room. I'm holding you to the band. Okay. We're going to do it. All right. All right.
0: I got connections.
2: <laughs> so this episode was co-written by Kathy Dobie, Micharn Clockley, and Brianna Young. Brianna is the veteran SVU writer of this power trio, and she was kind enough to stop by to discuss the creation of At Midnight in Manhattan. I am here with Brianna Yellen, co-writer of the episode Midnight in Manhattan. Thanks for coming on Room.
3: Of course. Thanks for having me.
2: So where did the idea for three different storylines in this episode come from?
3: It sort of started where we were trying to think back in the recent past, at least, hadn't ever done an SVU where we tackle more than one case recently. And so in thinking about that, we thought it would be interesting to pull from three different scenarios and cases that we deal with all the time and have a day in the life of the squad room. You know, our guys are in there are about to head out. And then phone rings and three cases come in. So each case is quickly assigned and sort of all hands on deck going through the system type episode.
2: If Kat had not said it was quiet, that would not have happened.
3: Of course. Yeah. We would have just all went home and had an easy night.
2: Were they originally standalone episode ideas?
3: They weren't. They definitely could be. And it would have been nice to like really dive into the relationships and the cases that each of the three different, you know, storylines were. But no, we wanted to just see bits and pieces of these storylines, and it just worked out that we were able to weave them into one episode.
2: So is there any way that they connect or coexist in your mind? Do they have any relationship to each other other than the fact that they're happening at the same time?
3: I think the reality of all three together, they're all sort of, unfortunately, common cases and like the I guess mundane aspect or the regular aspect of all of these cases was what was interesting to us just playing the reality of these three cases and things like this happen every day and go through the system and we were trying to play the reality of that
2: and being that Kathy and Misharn are new writers were you kind of running um <laughs> running thanks.
3: I will definitely say this was one of the best co-working experiences that I've had. I loved working with the two of them. They each brought so much, and it was nice and refreshing to have two totally different new voices come in. And um, they definitely taught me stuff and thought of things that I never would have thought of and brought to each storyline. And I think we each sort of gravitated towards one of the storylines, so it just sort of naturally fell into each one of our laps and... We sort of ran with it from there.
2: So they weren't, like, assigned? Like, how did you divvy it up?
3: Yeah, when we were writing it, we definitely assigned. Like, okay, you take this case, I'll take that case, and I'll take that case. But it just naturally felt like, oh, I think you have an interesting take on that. Just in the plotting of it, at least, we just each sort of had more details and more ideas for our storylines that we each took.
2: And for your storyline, what was really the main idea behind your...
3: Well, it's a common DV case I've been wanting to... Dive deep into a DB case lately, and and we just thought that, you know, having something like this, which happens all the time, we hear about it, it's in the news all the time, we just thought it would be interesting to get into.
2: You play the recording a few times of the call. Yes. It's so stressful.
3: Oh my gosh.
2: And upsetting.
3: Yeah. I don't know if it, this is possible, but it was even more stressful and upsetting filming it in the room, because this kid was amazing. He was I hate it. So good. Yeah. I mean, it was awful to listen to, but this actor, we were lucky enough to get in the room. There were like six adults and him. We're like, okay, go. And he just, the waterworks and the hysterics, it was just, we were all emotional after walking out of that room.
2: We've all seen a lot of these. And when something affects you like that, it's pretty like jarring. And that really got to me. Yes. And I think I was surprised by how Much it upset me. And I was like, I don't want to hear that again.
3: I know. And sometimes they play 911 calls that come out on the news and you hear, they're just broadcast. Sometimes you're watching the news and it pulls on your heartstrings. And so that visceral reaction to hearing, especially a kid helpless, but trying to do the right thing and call for help when he doesn't know if he's going to get in trouble for doing this or if he thinks he can somehow help the situation. So just playing on the emotion of that. And of course, you know, like, Benson's going to react to that. Finn is going to react to that. Everyone's going to have a reaction to it. Yeah. And um, So yeah, I think it was one of the more emotional beats in the story.
2: I thought that Finn had a nice relationship with Andre. Yeah,
3: um, it, was the, it was so much fun playing yeah. that, seeing him in sort of a paternal role with a younger kid. Yeah. You know, we have Jaden on, his grandson, every now and then, and it's nice to see him because we see him behind the scenes with Chanel and his kids come by all the time, so it, it was nice to have him portray that on the episode. And actually when we were filming that car scene, there's a moment where Finn is supposed to pick the kid up off the car and put him on the ground. And the kid just automatically went in for the hug and like wrapped himself around ice. And ice just went with it. And it was just so nice yeah. and moving to have that just little beat there. Yeah.
2: What's happening with Joel and her sister?
3: I think that's a strained relationship, but they're pretty tight. So it's very complicated. And I think from the sister's perspective, it's everything would just be easier if this goes away and you just deal with it and figure it out and deal with it yourself. And Joelle, she stands up for herself at, you know, Benson's... uh,
2: She needs a push. Pushing. Yeah.
3: And the reality is there is no great ending for her in this situation. And so we're just trying to play with the outcome of, you know, what's better.
2: Going on that idea that there is no perfect ending, Kathy and Jamie had a very different take on the ending of Kathy's storyline, where Kathy felt that was justice and Jamie felt that was not. Justice was not served. Right. And I'm interested in your take on that.
3: I think, and maybe it's because I was, Kathy and I were talking about this over and over and over again, like what the ending should be. And I think it's Lakira's justice. She's making her own justice as she's had to throughout her life. And so that was the best justice that she could get and be comfortable with in that moment and in this time for her.
2: Is it often that you have an ending that a writer and an actor could disagree that much on
3: yeah and sometimes that's great because one actor thinks one thing and the other actor thinks the other thing they're both playing what they think is right and that plays into the complexity of the scene and it's in reality that's what it is I think I'm right you think you're right and so you're gonna
2: I think that's really compelling because I I don't think Kathy's point that if she goes through the justice it's not gonna work it's not you know and then to me like I was like, "Oh, she's gonna be back with her mother." You know, that was like some weird, like mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a good thing, probably right. a terrible thing. Right. But like, there was something I kind of liked about that. Um, whereas, and then, but Jamie was just like, "No,
3: you yeah, know,
2: that should have." Well,
3: Cat, so. in a way, I mean, she was pushing so hard and working so hard for this girl, and if she feels that she didn't get justice, the justice that the, you know, the, what the law says is justice. She didn't feel she got that for Lakira, but Lakira might not have wanted that. So, yeah.
2: Yeah. Is this something that you see more as like, not a gimmick, but like, oh, let's try this. Or do you think that you would do this structure again.
3: I love doing the structure and trying to weave in and playing the reality of how many cases come in a day and how hard are detectives have to work. And it's not just one case that you're focused on all the time. There, Your mind goes in 10 different directions. You're thinking about all these different people that you have to interview and go out and find and talk to and, and all that. It was definitely difficult to weave together. The fourth part of this, besides the three stories, the fourth part of this was Creasy's perspective. And he's sort of getting pulled in every different direction. There's, I think, two or three squad room scenes that were really fun to write, but were equally difficult, where he's literally being pulled into three or four different rooms within the course, and then having a scene, and then being pulled out. And then having a scene, and then being pulled out.
2: Did you write the conflict between Rollins and That actually
3: came up as a Warren and Julie afterthought. It wasn't plotted in the original plot, but we needed like a big punch out. I think it was act two or act three. And we were all feeling the frustration of like, okay, how are we going to get from this scene to the next scene? And then make sure the audience is still with us and not having to explain everything. And it was early on in Carisi's move. And Rollins was having some feelings about that, as I think anyone would when you your partner goes on, moves on. And so we're like, why don't we just have it out? Yeah. And so, yeah, they. I love that they came up with that because I think it worked
2: It's great. a great scene. It's a really, really great scene and a very well-acted scene.
3: Oh, my gosh. Yeah.
2: Well, Brianna Ellen, thank you for coming on Squadron. Thanks for having me. So we discussed with Kelly and Brianna how there were three storylines occurring simultaneously in At Midnight in Manhattan. It was really necessary for the three worlds to look different from one another. My next guest was a big part of successfully making that happen, and she is the incredibly talented costume designer, Juliet Polksa. So, Juliet Polksa, welcome Thank to The squad room.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: Coming in at season 14, the show had a look, the characters had a look, but some new characters had just come in, Amanda Rollins. Mm-hmm. What did you take from the past costume designer and what did you bring in of your
1: own? Interesting question. I mean, one of my first conversations with Warren, he was mostly interested in those worlds that we go into and the perpetrators and the victims and, you know, whatever strata of New York we're going into, and which was all kind of great. And then I said, okay, well, what about our principals? What about our main actors? And he went, oh, well, um, whatever you think. <laughs> so I thought, okay. And my first thought is you know, having done New York City detectives many times before, that they, especially Manhattan detectives, do kind of pride themselves in looking good. And some of our male cast had suits on, and, you know, some of the women and and a couple of other guys did not. So one of the first things I wanted to do is try to put a more businessy kind of professional look into it, which was met with some resistance at first, and, um, and everybody seemed to know, kind of grasp it and appreciate it. And that was, I think, the the biggest thing. One of the characters I think I had the hardest time was Ice-T because I was looking at it as, you know, I hadn't really watched much of the show. I had watched a few episodes and was trying to figure out, you know, when you don't give birth to a character, when you're not there to make the decisions about, you know, why somebody would wear something. So I'm just trying to figure it out and I was kind of a little little lost, and I finally had a conversation with ICE, and he just clarified it for me. He said, well, you see, it's me as a cop. And I <laughs> went, oh, okay. Well, then if I just take my cues from what he wears, then, you know, and that's what we've been doing, and he's been very happy. You know, he's certainly 21 years older, so he has a little bit more, um, you know, that executive type of look i mean he's grown a little bit more into blazers and sneakers than say the hooded sweatshirts that he used to have
2: i want to talk to you about that aging your character's aging and how you respond to that with your job
1: you know some of it is is aging and how your body changes and how you know sizes need to kind of adjust and you know, we certainly do that. The The most important thing is to me it doesn't matter what size the actor is as long as what they're wearing is true to who their character is. So as long as we can keep that, I can do it in any size you want.
2: I wasn't thinking so much about sizes as um, I often think as I've gotten older, what is age appropriate? True, true. And is that something you think about or struggle well, with? Well, yeah, or?
1: and in, in some of, like, I think Ice is the biggest one who has kind of made that change he still has a very kind of street comfortable feel to him. He'll still wear kind of sneakers, but he likes having like the sport coat on, you know, every now and then it just seems right for a guy his age where maybe he couldn't have pulled it off, you know, 15, 20 years before. Um, You know, Mariska certainly has aged throughout this role and it's not so much of an age thing, but her stature within the department and her rank has changed. So then, you know, her look has changed, you know, somewhat to uh, accomplish that. And, you know, Kelly has also gone through a, um, you know, a little bit of a kind of young on the streets, and now she's a much more kind of accomplished detective and has, has been in the squad for a long, long time. So, again, she just has a more kind of mature way about her, which a lot of it was kind of reflected in bringing in a new cast member, Jamie Gray Hyder, they wanted to have this young you know, attitude and how she talks and what she does and, and her clothing. So um, getting something that looked kind of hip and young that my older detectives couldn't pull off. And she does wear a lot of kind of crop pants and sneakers and flat shoes. And it was kind of perfect when somebody like Ice questioned. He's like, why do you have her like that? <laughs> he's like, he'll come in and he's like, good morning, Jamie. Good morning, Jamie's ankles. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and she's also wearing like um suits too right is yeah she yeah. wears
1: suits but it's still kind of you know uh, a slimmer younger version and you know a suit with a sneaker which is not something that mershka could do or kelly could do so jamie and i guess
2: uh carisi would be the two that you built their character with. yeah
1: exactly um and carisi was a an interesting challenge because when he first came in they, well, the very first episode I did with him, he didn't even play Carisi. He played right. this other minor character. <clears throat> so when we brought him back, they wanted him a real New York uh, detective with like, they had. he had a mustache and suits that don't fit really well and bad taste in ties and just a different type of swagger. And um, that's what they wanted. And I gave it to him. And then they were, ooh, they started to realize, well, maybe that's not quite right. So we... We gradually they started to write things where another detective would make fun of his tie, so we started to tone things down a little bit. Where eventually he kind of ended up into a younger, more, you know, fitted suit, three-piece, um, skinny ties, and you know, a younger detective in a suit. And now he's graduated to, um, you know, a, a variation on that theme as being a, a district attorney now.
2: So when Lecure makes fun of his shoes in episode five. What did you think of that?
1: I thought that was a writer thing, not kind of understanding because he's basically wearing the same shoes as, you know, well, I guess it's true. He is wearing his cop shoes. I tend to like his shoes. He does. So, he wears yeah. Alden shoes, which yeah. are, which are really kind of great, sturdy. Um, Cause you figure out these, these actors wear these shoes for, you know, 12 or more hours a day. So they take more of a beating than I think a lot of, you know, the shoes that you and I may wear and, uh, Having good quality shoes is important because they also, you know, another thing that I have to think about is an actor's comfort. You know, if their feet hurt, you can't act if your feet hurt. You can't do anything if your feet hurt. So, uh, you know, you always want to make sure that they're comfortable, they're warm, they're, you know, nothing's going to affect performance at all.
2: I think with someone like Mariska, who i have just working on the show, people are following every, her every move and her every outfit. And do you feel any pressure
1: about that? Or do no, you, because I don't pay attention to that. You
2: don't see what's, hap- what's no, out there? No, no. Okay. Maybe that's good.
1: <laughs> I think it is. Cause I, I don't want to be swayed by that. You know, I don't want to be like, Oh, you know, however many Twitter followers like this, you know, type of jacket or whatever. I just want to kind of do what I think is what I think is right and not by public opinion.
2: Much was made about a uh, dress that I think she wore to uh, Billy's christening
1: mm-hmm. online.
2: So it was like, I did not oh, hear that. See, it, yeah, I, you yeah. know, and people are, you know are amazed that about? I'm not
1: on Instagram, but that's my choice.
2: It's like uh, you don't read your reviews
1: mm-hmm. like an actor. Did they like the dress?
2: Oh, God. it's like,
1: no, it's more than
2: light. Oh, okay, it's good. It's, <laughs> no, it was...
1: She looks great in dresses. If I could put her in a dress all the time, I, I, I would be a very happy person.
2: <laughs> it costs a lot of excitement. For oh, good. The public, yeah. Good. So, is it hard to do your job with yes. with the non <laughs> non principles without resorting to stereotypes?
1: Yes, because a lot of times the notes that I will get from the writers or the directors, their fallback is to go to a stereotype, and I'm always struggling to pull them out of the stereotype to bring them something that's more real and, um, you know, not circa 1992 or something. So, yeah, I try to bring something current. And, you know, sometimes it's small little things. It's a, it could be a shoe or a certain kind of style. And if people kind of notice the small detail, not everybody does, um, then kudos to them. But, yeah, I do try to not to go to the stereotype because that's not interesting. We've all seen that.
2: Do you think that people's perception of what's being worn uh, in Chelsea or on the Upper West side, or in the projects is is kind of a simple version of what's actually happening
1: of what people do wear, yeah, yeah, oh, I definitely think so. then there's the you know what people do wear, and then you have artistically a heightened sense of how you want to underline that without going to a stereotype but you choose a certain color palette to kind of emphasize a certain world versus another world. And, you know, that kind of helps, you know, underline what that world is.
2: Maybe we should now talk about episode five, Midnight in Manhattan, where you have three different worlds mm-hmm. and you could explain to me how you were able to differentiate those yeah. in the well, same episode.
1: Like I said, we had these three different worlds and, you know, finding different ways to, display that I mean some of it was done with cinematography and how they shot it and then you know with color palette of you know some of what my costumes were um, for our world with Chloe and her parents in Upper West Side we chose a very kind of muted lighter color palette which everything was just you know perfect you know um, for our projects things were much more kind of dingier and gray and messy and simple. And then when we got to the transgender kids, everything was much more kind of bright and fun. And um, so definitely, yeah, three different worlds.
2: How much time did you spend talking to the writers about these different worlds?
1: We Usually we spent every episode. I'll have a, a meeting with the writers and, and the director. I'll have like my costume meeting, so to speak, Um, And we talk about it then. So for like an hour, we go through the whole script and kind of talk about how, how do we want to portray something? You know, what is it that we're trying to get across? Or, you know, specific characters, how do we want them portrayed? Or, you know, do we have a, you know, in the case of this show, had a very distinct design idea of where we wanted to go.
2: Are you met with any resistance when you pick things out from the actor's?
1: You know, the one thing I have to say, I'm very fortunate on this show, is they they trust me, which I am, you know, extremely grateful for. Um, And yet I am kind of, you know, open to suggestions. Sometimes somebody has a different point of view about something. It's like, well, what if, could a character, could they have, you know, and then sometimes I have choices and, you know, to me, I could go either way, but I'll let them, like, well, do you like the purple one or the orange one, you know? Yeah, and sometimes they're resistant and for me it's more of um, did I misconstrue something and we were trying to convey this and I went the other direction and, you know, as long as it gets back to what's the story we're trying to tell, that's the most important part.
2: Do you feel like the public realizes how integral you are to the storytelling?
1: Probably not. Most people don't. Does that bother you? Yes and no. Um... You know, on one hand, you you work behind the scenes because you don't want to be in front of the camera. But, you know, it was said to me once, that the best costumes are the ones that you don't notice because they don't jump out at you. They just let the story be told. And those are the best costumes. So, you know, it's this weird thing where you want to be noticed, but you don't want to be noticed.
2: <laughs> I, I agree about the jumping out, but I can picture in my head right now specific things that your characters have worn that I haven't looked at. Mm -hmm. in maybe a decade or two. So I think you are leaving an impression. You know, maybe it's not jumping out at you, but it is happening.
1: Yeah, I just do what I do.
2: (laughs) Well, thank you for coming on The Squad Room and talking about what you do.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
2: That's it for The Squad Room. Next week, Peter Scanovino comes through to talk all things Sonny Carisi. You're going to want to check that out. We love to hear from you. So please follow us on Instagram at NBCSVU and Wolf Entertainment and on Twitter at SVU and Wolf N. The Squadron was hosted and produced by me, Anthony Roman. It is executive produced by Elliot Wolf and Warren Light. And it's brought to you by NBC and Wolf Entertainment. We'll see you next week. Thanks.